got it. I feel like I'm going to strangle myself here. Any, any prayer requests? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself in the Mass. I think it's easy, easy sometimes for us to take the sacraments for granted. Um, help us not to do that. Um, you are here present always. Um, um, your divine life is offered to us in the sacrament, so strengthen all of us in our efforts to give ourselves to them, confession, the Eucharist, marriage. Um, we enter into a sacredness that the rest of the world doesn't know. There's a burden that comes with that, heavier burden to take seriously our call to holiness, strengthen us in our efforts. The world doesn't know it, doesn't make it easier for us. Uh, help us all um, um, to move closer to you through them. Ask a special blessing on Elliot and Holly. Holly, um, watch over um, that young couple um, as they prepare for marriage. Help their hearts to open. Um, let one thing especially happen um, between the two of them as they prepare for marriage. Um, help them both to um, give themselves um, to a willingness to live in mysteries. Um, <laughs> there's so much about a world that wants to control everything. Um, I'm not sure that we live very well in mysteries. Help us all to do that, but especially as they're entering into a marriage. They're going to learn a lot about each other and a lot about themselves from all that they do with each other. Help them, be with them. Um, and. Um, be with all those who love them, too, who, um, who will pray for them and hope for them. Um, I ask for a special prayer for um, our sons, Thomas and Christopher, watch over them in the struggles that they're having right now. Um, and help all of us to give ourselves to the wisdom of these books. Uh, you're in them. Um, not always to see you, but you are. Strengthen in us a spirit of openness. It's our way into mysteries and a way to you. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. God. Huh? Yeah. Um, okay. Can you take out the Elliot poem? Sorry, I'm having troubles. Last week we had a yeah, I was really glad for it. But can you take out um, Journey to Magi? <clears throat> Doc, did you turn the other one on? Just put it up here the way it was.
There, um, you should have it in your packet, but in case you don't, there's extra copies back there. So. I can't remember if we've done anything of T.S. Eliot's before. I don't, I don't think we have. Um, if make sure you get a, oh you didn't I did first I don't think we've done anything by Elliot so far and sometimes I get the classes confused at some point if you've got the endurance and are brave enough now I'm going to do the four quartets with you which that's a long way off, but um, it's probably the most difficult collection of poems in the 20th century. Not easy, but extraordinary, just extraordinary. But I, I chose this poem tonight because it's um, Epiphany Week still, and um, this speaks to Epiphany. This is a poem that Eliot wrote towards the end of his life after his conversion. He, he grew up in a Christian family, left it born in St. Louis in America and, and moved to England because he thought of America as the, the dust bowl of democracy. There's a lot of truth to that. Anyway, he left for England and um, an important intellectual in the 20th century and midway in his life he had a conversion and returned to the church, became I think an Anglo, Ang, high, high church um, Catholic, an Anglo-Catholic. Um, the, the interesting thing about Eliot is the intellectual world loved him because he was so so bright. Um, his work on poetry and literature and culture was outstanding. Intellectuals flocked to him. And when he converted, they hated, they hated him. Um, it's, it's like he betrayed them. Um, anyway, this, this is a poem written towards the end of his life. There's a collection of poems on, explicitly on, on um, Christian themes. There's a poem called Marina, which is, um, who is a figure in um, Shakespeare's Pericles. Um, and, a, and a couple of other poems, but this one's particularly appropriate. And I want to I, I preface it with this question, I guess. Um, how many of us actually live the journey of the Magi? You know, we, priests give homilies on it, I'm sure year after year, annually, we, we're used to hearing the story and it's become a part of our lives, I'm sure. But how many of us actually go back and live the Old Testament. If any of you have ever done the um, Ignatian exercises, um, you'll know that what Ignatius does is ask us to go back to passages in the Bible and live them. Imagine ourselves there um, and together with some other activities, prayer and fasting and silence, um, to put ourselves there so that we actually participate in those scenes with Christ. It's part of his exercise. Eliot's doing that here in the journey, and you'll see why. What he's doing, it's like a palimpsest. Remember, a palimpsest is a, a layer on top of a layer. So it's, it's multi-layered. Whatever the meaning is on the surface, it carries other layers beneath it. The, the, um, our life in faith is actually a palimpsest because it rests on all these scriptures, all these readings, right? It's the basis of our life. So. When we hear the journey of the Magi, how many of us actually live it? I mean, truly take that journey. Remember those, those kings gave up their lives. They 
on an act of faith, they give up everything, everything that they have. And with no sense, I mean, whatever vague sense of mystery that was facing, they left everything and um, followed that star. And um, when they saw Christ, they left and returned another way. They couldn't go back to their lives the way, I mean, even if they returned to their kingdoms, there's some sense in which, if you're taking it seriously, there's no way they, they could have just picked up and continued the way they lived before. So that's, that's part of the backstory of that story. We hear it annually um, during the 15 week. This is Eliot's rewriting, or poem on that event reenacted. So he's making it possible for us to enter into that journey ourselves. That's why I asked the question, how many of us actually take that journey, relive it in our own lives? Or do we stay in our comfortable lives where we are, job, security, money, comforts, TV, you know, all of it. Um, do we stay there? Christ is calling us out all the time. So Eliot's speaking to that, okay? I'm gonna read it without any more comments than that because you know I try to just let it settle with you. But I'm gonna ask this one, make this one comment and, and ask you to keep it in mind when I read. Eliot's gonna bring birth and death together at the end of the poem. Um, so remember that. In the, the poem calls us to the moment when these magi are gonna arrive at the, um, at the stable and see Christ in swaddling clothes. He's just been born. It's a new birth. But watch the way Eliot brings birth and death together, okay, in this poem. And watch the way he uses a contemporary language, our language today, he's speaking for us, um, but he's making it clear the cost of leaving this stuff behind um, and the change it's gonna ask of these men. What's happening, okay? T.S. Eliot, The Journey of the Magi. The cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey, and such a long journey, the way's deep and the weather's sharp, the very dead of winter. Here it is, the worst time of the year. That's, that's the significance of Christ for us. The very dead of winter. And the camels galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times when we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces, and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Because if you had all those good things and don't, don't have them anymore, it's as if they've spoiled you, you know? And now you wish you hadn't been spoiled. There were times when we regretted the summer palaces and slopes, the terraces, and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women, and the night fires going out, and the lack of shelters, and the cities dirty and the towns unfriendly, and the villages dirty and changing, charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches with the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. Then at dawn we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a water mill beating the darkness, and three trees on the low sky. I think we're meant to think about the three crosses, yeah. 
and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with fine leaves over lintel, six hands and an open door dicing for pieces of silver and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information, and so we continued and arrived at evening, not a moment too soon finding the place. It was, you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember, and would do it again, but set down, this set down, this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. When you hear poems like this, how is it not hard to go back to our worlds, you know, the same? Okay. Um, quick, quick review. Um, we've got a lot to do tonight because I want to I get through some readings. Very, very quick review of what we were doing. Our purpose is to find Christ in the world. And I've suggested, when we started, I remember which Shakespeare on the edge of modernity, looking at our regime, the commercial republic, and, and learning from Portia what our problems are, the, the conflict between law and mercy. And we saw how she handled a particular a problem that was um, really a paradigm, an illustration of something typical of our regime, because we're so given to law, we're a commercial regime, so contracts are at the basis of our world together. And we saw what could happen. Um, you either break them and the regime gets destroyed, or you hold to the law and the, the law gets harsh. We saw Helena, um, I suggested, I know there are differences on this, but um, remember that she was resourceful, she humbled, she, she risked her life. Um, trying to cure the king, she did. She took on Bertram's sins when he fled and she found out about it. She took the guilt on herself, very much like Christ. Um, and everything she did was for the good of him. You know, you can read it and say she's a selfish person, but remember that the object of love, if you look at the Trinity, I mean, just as a beginning point for all of us, the object of love, because love Love has to go out to another. I hope that's clear. And love is an action. In the Trinity, the love is shared between them because the object of love is the good of another. So the, the three persons of the Trinity are in perfect reciprocity with each other. They're, they indwell with each other. Everything she does is for the good of that man, even though he doesn't deserve it. Doesn't even come close to deserving it. She doesn't complain. Um, she doesn't blame him. She has every reason. She just loves him. And she has, she has to meet conditions which he put on her. And remember, she has to begin working with the conditions she inherited at the time that she lived. Right? She didn't ask for those things. She came into a class system which put her, made her inferior to Bertram. She had to overcome a lot. Um, and 
two of the fruits of all that she did were her marriage. I mean, we don't see what's going to happen. I mean, hope, hopefully he's learned. We don't know that. Hopefully he's learned. Um, and she had, what she's done um, has, what's the word, mediated, ameliorated, softened the, the class distinctions of that time. She, 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 um, she took that class distinction out, transcended it, and made it possible for others to do the same. So in some sense, I, I said this partly facetiously, but partly not. She's almost like a prototype of the French Revolution. She's getting those class distinctions out of the way so that love, which shouldn't be um, blocked by class prejudices, she let love, what she did allow love to work, to not let those boundaries get in the way. So a remarkable person. And then we ended with, um, with um, God, what do I do here? Um, we ended with uh, Anthony and Cleopatra because I wanted to um, sh raise this question for you because Shakespeare's a modern. He, he's, he's coming out of the Reformation Catholic struggles. I believe he's Catholic. Um, there's evidence to support that. The Protestants claim, his, claim him as a Protestant. So um, there's not a doubt in my mind. His sense of the miraculous, the sacred is too great. But um, in Anthony and Cleopatra, I wanted to see if we could um, see what Shakespeare was doing going back to a pre-Christian world to, s to see what he would do with it. And as I suggested when we did the play, it, it's really amazing that he could do what he did with that couple that, an, um, that anticipates Christ, that they, they, they shake off their identity with the political world that's formed both of them. Anthony is a Roman and Cleopatra is Egyptian. And they enter into this transcendent kind of love at the end. Um, how many people at that day would have seen Romans and Egyptians? None. It's another illustration of what I've been su suggesting all along, that the poets, <coughs> The poets help us to see things that ordinarily we don't see. So even though Christ isn't visible in any of these plays, we don't see him uh, the way we do in church in an icon, or um, we sense a, a transcendent action going on, okay? Um, and in one sense, that's a really good transition to what we're about to do right now, because now we're going back to a pre-Christian world, and my question is going to be, what was God doing before Christ came? Was he not active? Impossible to think. What I'm going to suggest in opening and, and hope, hopefully show you as we go through the Iliad, that God was very, very active. Um, and I think in ways that sometimes people who are not Christian can't see. And, and even more importantly, ways Christians don't even see. Um, but let me see if I can back that up. You may, you may have problems with it, but let me see if I can make good on that. So, um, we're going back to a pre-Christian world, to the very beginnings. Um, and let me suggest this right now, see what you think of it when we get there. I'm going to say that in Achilles, in Achilles, we've got a man, even though Christ, Homer didn't know Christ. The world didn't know him then. But everything about that book is going to suggest Christ. I've got to show you that, but I'm going to suggest right now that everything that happens to Achilles takes him straight to the cross. So that's my proposition. Let me put that out at the beginning, see what you think. Hold me to that. 
if I forget to come back to it, you've got doubts or reservations or arguments, you can bring them up later, but give me a chance to show that, okay? He's going straight to the cross. Um, so, we know that the Trojan War took place around 1200, it, and in fact, we've got evidence to show that. It's just about the same time that Joshua enters the Promised Land, and interestingly, the subject of both the Iliad and the Odyssey will be a refounding of a people. But something happens to a people to give them a due identity of themselves with a renewed sense of their relationship to the divine, to the gods. That's what every epic's going to be about. So my claim here up front is that it's, it is a founding work of Western civilization. It belongs with Genesis and Exodus. Okay. It's, it's making us aware that a people is being reconstituted, coming to a new identity of itself because of what happens with this one man. Okay. Homer lived about 850 somewhere. A lot of this from Herodotus, the historian who talks about Homer. Um, the amazing thing to, to remember is that all the evidence suggests that Homer was blind. We know that um, Homer received these stories of both the Iliad and the Odyssey from an oral tradition. So they were passed on by bards from 1200 um, people reflecting back on the war, passing it on because that war, that war was important because in a sense it represented the destruction of a civilization, a whole way of life wiped out. It's a little bit like the atomic bomb taken out of the city. A way of life was destroyed, okay? So it, it, it's symbolic of something paradigmatic about man, that we're, we're capable of destroying ourselves. So right here at the beginning, Homer's making us aware that a civilization is at risk, it's destroyed. Um, how did Homer do what he did? Um, so, he received the stories from an oral tradition from bards who came before him, but he gave it some, those two stories, some stamp of his own, his own mark, his own vision, and he was blind. I just want to suggest something along those lines. I, I mean, these my thoughts, they're tentative, so take them that way. I think sometimes we're so preoccupied with the world, remember Plato's Kate? We're so taken by what our senses give us um, that it, it, it keeps us from having a spiritual depth to our vision. And that very often poets are the ones who help us recover that spiritual vision. You know that I've been saying from the beginning that the poets are the ones who help take us back to Eden to recover what we've lost. So they bring to us a spiritual depth that so often we, we don't come to because we're too caught up in our senses. We see a new car, we want a new car. We see a new home, we want a new home. We see somebody who's rich, who's got kids who seem to be happy, we want to be rich and have our kids do the same thing. So very often, our preoccupation with the world keeps us from seeing deeper things. So it's a serious, I'm putting it as a question, it's a serious question in my, my mind, looking back on what I know about Homer, whether he didn't come to this depth because he was blind. Um. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 and what, what modifications he would have made, you know, who knows, we don't, scholars have been struggling with this stuff for, honestly, for centuries, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a major thing, because almost all great poets who work in the tradition, 
tradition know they've got to go back to Homer because it all begins with him. But, but no century ever worked as hard as scholarship as our century. So the last century, scholarship is, you can imagine, multiplied tremendously, tremendously I think. But what are they going to, I mean, what are they going to come up with? You know, what, uh, most of what we know is from historians that came, before. Herodotus is a major source, but others after him. Um, <clears throat> The, the scholarship suggests that it wasn't until about the 6th century under the ruler Pisistratus that the oral form of the poetry finally took a written form. That people were assigned to write it down and that what we've got afterwards is that written form of what before that was oral. Um, for the longest time since then, because Greece was so important to our own formation, you know that, you all know that, the pre-Socratic philosophers are doing something, philosophers in no other, no other civilization, not in Egypt, not in China, not in Africa. What the pre-Socratic philosophers did in, in helping us to understand being and God had, had no rivals. There's nobody doing the same sort of thing. And out of them came Socrates and finally Plato and Aristotle. And they're the great philosophers who in every, in, without even knowing it, paved the way intellectually, philosophically, for Christ. Because all of their thinking hinted at an unmoved mover, a god, the good, all the, all the ways in which um, Plato and Aristotle would think. So Homer was called the educator of Greece. And by extension, he's the educator of Western civilization. The philosophers, you'll, you'll see this as we go along, the philosophers could never have done what they did without Homer. That's simply a fact. So in one strict sense, poetry precedes philosophy. It helps prepare for it. What we get in the philosophers is a conceptualization of what Homer gives us intuitively, imaginatively. So in reading Homer, we're actually going back to our beginnings um, to the great educator. I mean, that's the way the poets used to look at him. The terms that I gave you last week, I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time, but I just recall them. Epic, invocation, in medias res, epithets, epic similes, catalogs, aristia. I went through those very briefly. I just want to touch on them again because I, I want to get to the readings here with you guys tonight. Um, remember, an epic means a word or a song, but it's sacred. It's, it, it expresses a divine reality beyond anything that man can convey on his own. So epos, epic, epos means the word, the song. It implies an exchange. And I want to, I'm going to go beyond this, but trust me if you can for a second. Remember that the nature of everything for us, according to our Catholic belief, is the Trinity. Our God is not an isolated God. It's not the God of um, Judaism. It's not Islam's God. It's not Allah. Our God is one God, monotheistic, one God, three persons. So at the essence of our belief is this exchange, this indwelling. We're meant to indwell with each other. That's our nature. Our nature as Catholics, as Christians, is communal. It's not private. Absolutely not private. It's communal. The source, if we're made in God's image, we were meant to love and be loved. 
So some exchange is taking place. So a word isn't just a word uttered or a word spoken. It implies an exchange. Something's happening. And in this case, the poet who's writing an epic, Epos, is speaking a divine word, calling on the gods to help him. Because remember, all the epics begin. Sing, goddess, the story of Achilles. The epics begin with a prayer, with the poet invoking the help of the god. So the, we, what we understand is the gods are speaking through him. It's a divine order. There's a beauty, an order, a depth of truth and beauty that the gods can give him that man can't give himself. That's the nature of an epic. Okay? So, epos, epic. Um, and what, and I, I think I told you this before. I remember when I was teaching at, the, at uh, UD, when I was teaching there, and occasionally uh, there was more time for questions, so I'd ask a lot more than... But I remember when I, when I was going over the epic terms, and I said, when we talked about... Um, the invocation, the poet invoking the help of, remember Calliope, the goddess of epic poetry. I said, is that real or is it just an epic convention? And the students by and large said, it's just an epic convention. Because in the modern world, it, 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 the modern world looks at it as a technique. That's the technique of the epic. Is everybody following? That is, it's, it's, it's treated reductively. Over time, because it became established as a way, it was understood as a technique. It's, it's a rationalization, it's a technique. It's not real. Poets just doing this because it's a poetic convention. B.S. Sorry. <laughs> this is gonna go online. I've gotta be, I've gotta be really careful here. God. <laughs> B.S. <laughs> it's real, he's praying to the gods. So, is, so when Virgil does his epic, when he does the, you know, it's gonna be the same. Dante is gonna make an appeal to the gods too. Same gods? No. But he, he knows, in the middle of the Divine Comedy, he's going to say, everything I write is in, God, is in response to the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm dictating the words, or he's dictating to me, sorry. Every poet, who's, the, the nature of the epic is to recover our relationship with the gods. So the epic poet, when he makes this invocation, is saying a prayer to ask for divine help, because he knows he could not tell that story without it. Okay? So when we, epic, when we enter the epic world, we're entering a different world. It's a world in which the gods are revealed interacting with men. That's the nature of this. Okay? Um, I don't want to tackle Helen's story, but right now I just uh, need her question. But um, lots of people are going to say that the, the, the humans in the, in the Homeric world don't have free will. They do. The gods are intervening all the time. But it's so clear that Homer believes in the free will of man. I'll, I'll get to that later. But, but at this point, it, the, the epic is a story involving a refounding, that the gods are at work helping man to come to see some disorder in his life and change it. And it's going to change here in a radical way that's going to, it's going to distinguish Western civilization from every other civilization at that time. This is the beginning of our world as we know it. And I'm going to say that world as we know it, I think right now is very much at risk from everything that you all know is going on. So, epic, invocation, in medius race, in the midst of things. Remember I said last week, it doesn't mean in the arithmetic middle, in the midst of things. It means in the midst, in a problem. 
Um, it's you're in a family and suddenly you, you hear that Aunt Sally has run off with some guy. Or your son, you discover your son is on drugs and you didn't realize it. Or there's some disorder, something is going on and suddenly you realize you've been going along in life, everything's going along just the way you think, you're fine, the world is fine, and then suddenly something happens and you realize the rug has been pulled out from underneath you and you realize the way that you've been looking at things is all wrong. Right? At this point, by the way, this is Plato's cave. At this point, you realize you're in the cave and you've got to, question, you've got to begin to question what you're doing because you can't look at things the way you have any longer. So in the midst of things means that it's at this point we either stick our head in the sand or we begin to question. And if we don't begin to question, we won't get out of the cave. So you can see the relevance of Plato's cave here, yeah? In Medius Race, in the midst of things. Every epic poem begins in the middle of something. When things are going on, status quo is, okay, you know, it's the way it is. And then suddenly something happens and we realize, or certainly somebody in the story and we with him realize um, we can't do things the way we're doing them anymore. So, epic invocation, medius race, epithets, ox-eyed hair, swift-footed Achilles, rosy-fingered dot. An epithet is just descriptions that modifiers of persons. But hold on, they're, once again, they're not just techniques. It's Homer, it's the poet's way of saying ox-eyed Hera, swift-footed Achilles. Those epithets define the essence of a person. It helps us see that person for who he is. Athena, you know, great Athena, or the Athena, the weaver, you know, all of those. There's something distinct about each person, and the poet sees it and names it in those epithets. So we're learning to see that there's more to a person. We could describe that person. I remember when I first met Suzanne, um, she, she uh, did a commonplace book. I'm not giving things away here. I'm not gonna tell you her first description of me. Maybe later I will, but <laughs> God. Um, but she used to do thumbnail sketches, you know, of teachers, characters, people, and she just, she enjoyed writing and reading. Um, in my teaching, over the, the course of my teaching life, I made it a requirement for probably the first 10 years of my life, 20 years, of my students to do commonplace books. I didn't want diaries. I did not want them to be focused on themselves. I called them commonplace books. Commonplace books because I wanted them to learn to be observant, you know, do thumbnail sketches, listen to the words that people use, listen to their speeches, hear the words they use, get them down in writing so they become a part of you. The poet does that. You know, he's, he's teaching us to be aware. So the epithets are not just techniques. They're not just epic techniques. They're an indication of how observant the poet was in, of, a, of, of something that distinguished one person from another. Okay? Um, epic similes. You know what similes are. Um, he... Um, he roared is a buried simile, but he, he roared like a lion, or he, um, um, his, the words came out of his mouth like a stream running down you know, a hill or something like that. It's comparing one thing to another. Once again, it's not just a technique, it's showing there's an affinity 
There's an affinity between man and his nature. There t- there's not a question in my mind that there are moments when a man becomes like a bear. Yeah? For a woman, like a witch or whatever, you know, use your own. <laughs> Sorry, what? Oh. <laughs> um, that, that, that we have this affinity with everything. Our na- Wait, true, truly. The, the challenge for us is, can we get a hold of the, the angelic or the animal in us so that we can learn to become fully human? We're one with nature. That's how God made us. We're part of creation. That, I'm going to come to this in a minute because to, to me it's so important. We have this affinity and it helps us to see how we're like things that we shouldn't be like, you know, like a bear. Or, or actually, there are times when we want to be like a lion. Christ was called a lion, yeah? Because there are times when we need that kind of courage to do what we're facing, right? So there's this affinity, and the poet is helping us to see resemblances and differences, okay? And catalogs. There's nothing, right up front, take this, absolutely. There's nothing that Homer does that doesn't show his sense of order. There is nothing in this poem is not ordered. Who are the first combatants we're going to meet in this epic? Who are the first combatants, the first battle? In actual physical combat. No, you can't look, Mary. You cannot look. Put that book down. It's Menelaus and Paris. Why? Because they're principled. They're the ones who started. Is that accidental? Absolutely not. So um, there's now you'll see. I mean, you'll appreciate it more and more. I'm going to, by the end end of our work on Iliad, I'm going to put a circle together with all the battles. It'll be amazing for you to to track out all the major battles until we get to the very end. If you've read it, you already know who that's going to be. I'm not going to give it away. But it's amazing that there's nothing he does that doesn't show an order, a significance. Could man alone have done that? My claim is no. It's only with the help of the gods because only the gods can see the full picture. So the catalogs, like the catalogs of the ship in the second book, they will order up. Homer, and people get bored at that point. You, you know, if, if you get bored and don't read it, you're going to miss something. Because when he lays out, when Nestor, when, when Agamemnon has his dream and says, the war's over, everybody go home. You know, the men go nuts and then Achilles, or Odysseus calls them back into battle and, or order. Nestor's going to say to Agamemnon, the only way to win this battle is to find out who's not doing their job. He's exactly like a modern CEO. You want to find out why we're failing in selling this product? Line them all up and look at what they're doing. I, I, I don't know if I told you this before. When I was in California, a group of men, I think it was mostly men, got together. They were all lawyers and businessmen. They were reading Homer, Shakespeare, because they came to a point of realizing um, they could never read these works without finding what, what they weren't doing well and what they could do well from what they were learning from them. Homer, Shakespeare, Homer here. So the catalogs aren't just arbitrary. When you read that catalog which you discover of the catalog of the ships when Nestor says to Agamemnon, you want to find out why we're losing the war? Line all the men up. When you watch that catalog unfold, what you see is that one extreme has Aias and the other extreme has um, Achilles. 
They are the two most powerful men in the army. Achilles is almost the match, almost the match to Achilles. I mean, Aias is almost the match to Achilles. Who's in the middle? Odysseus. Because he's, he's going to be the hero of our next book. He is the, he's the prudent man. The man who knows to do, what to do, how to do it, under the, what circumstances. So two of the virtues in the epics, heroic, um, the heroism of a warrior in Achilles, the heroism of the prudent man trying to get home to his wife. So in the catalog of the ship, we've got Aias, Achilles, and Odysseus in the middle. That's not an accident. It's Homer's way of showing us something. So every one of these epic techniques, you know what the modern scholar says, a technique. It's not a technique. I mean, it is a technical thing, but it's also a way of revealing things. The poet has of showing us things. Okay? So those are the epic terms, the, 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 some of the things that distinguish the epic, say, from a modern novel. If we ever get to a point, if we ever get to a point, I'm not sure who will, but see how you guys do, um, or how I do. Um, my hope is that we'll get to um, Moby Dick and um, Scarlet Letter, the beginnings, an important moment in American history, and then Faulkner. Um, Melville writes Moby Dick. The hero of that book is Ishmael from the Bible, the outcast one, the outcast one. If you know the Sarah um, Abraham story, you know that that was the outcast one. Uh, Faulkner loved Moby Dick. He said he wished he'd written it. He writes a book called Go Down Moses. It's his epic. The hero of that book, Ike, Isaac, the chosen one. Faulkner knew exactly what he was doing. In the north, you've got Ishmael. In the south, you've got Isaac. Those are the two covenants in America. How many American English teachers know it? God, it drives me nuts. Oh, it does. What kids should be getting today, and they're not. You know, sad. Makes me. I better stop. persons. Um, I mean, it's, in, it's interesting you say that. We just, we just did Scarlet Letter at, at St. Francis. If you read the Scarlet Letter, you can't read two pages without, Hawthorne, without finding the Hawthorne's ground. He's writing this romance that most people are going to say, these things don't happen. He knows that. How is he countering it? By doing everything he can to locate it in history. Again and again, you can't read a page without coming across an actual historical figure. It's his way of saying, wake up, you, you think these things don't happen. This was history. Um, I'm exaggerated, but it's to make a point. With Homer, we can't say. I, I think it's, and, and it's probably one of the reasons, I don't want to go here right now because it's too deep. It's probably one of the reasons why lots of philosophers call the poets liars. I, I don't know Homer know this, or, you know, 
my, I mean, you know my answer to that. He's trying to help us. He's trying to help us see something, and so he will order things up to do that. He's, he's written a poem, um, and I want to sort of go there. So, there's, it, you know, it's a good question. It's, it's impossible to answer with him because we don't know. Um, lots of people dispute that there was even a war when there's lots of evidence that there was. They've uncovered burial spaces in their digs. Writing, where, why did you think if they hadn't existed? Why would the poets have been written about them for the Chaucer? I mean, anyway, yes, yes, yes to all that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you guys should only half believe journalists and start believing poets. <laughs> God, I'm gonna get crucified on that. Um, here, come on. Let's. So the plot. The one thing that I I want to underscore in the plot is this. Remember, I think I mentioned this, but just to repeat it again, and, and it goes to this point that I'm making that Homer's ordering up things. The story begins with a ransoming, right? Crises comes with all this booty to ransom his daughter, his daughter Chryseis, back. And you know that Agamemnon doesn't do it, and that starts the quarrel between him and um, Achilles. So the, the, the epic begins with a ransom and a quarrel. And we know that that quarrel sets into motion the whole story. The epic ends with a quarrel, and I'm not going to tell you what happens, you have to read, and a ransoming. But everything that happens in the quarrel and the ransoming is the reverse of what happened in the beginning. Now, is that accidental? No, because what Homer's showing is that something happened between the gods and Achilles to make a radical change, to take a condition that's too common among men and reverse it. So the whole action is towards a reversal, a peripatia, a turn, what we've been talking about in the drama, right? So if you look at the, if you look at the poem, not only is it sung in harmony, every line, it's in a hexameter, it's a, it's a, a six-stress six stress line. Not only is it sung, a piece of harmony and beauty, it's symmetrical. It's exactly like a Grecian face. It's perfectly symmetrical. It has a beauty in its form. So even though, even though when we're reading, this is going to go to Boethius, I hope we get to this. Boethius says there's, there's no fortune that isn't good. If God is behind everything and our God is a good guy, there's nothing he isn't doing to take everything stupid we're doing and bring it to a good. Does our faith help us see that? It should. I don't think we do. Our church keeps saying, be glad, be glad, be glad, be thankful, be thankful. Only when you get things your way or only when things go nice? No, the church is saying, be glad, be thankful, because we know we, that's our faith. Even if we don't see it, God's at work. No matter what's going on, 
He's doing something to bring good out of things when we can't. That's what's going on in this epic, with all the epics we're reading. So, even though while we're in the midst of this thing, we keep coming across individuals whose names we can't remember, there are too many. There's too many battle scenes that are confusing. We're, we feel like we're in the middle of chaos, in lots of ways like our world, that our world is so chaotic, and yet something's going on to bring an order around. Okay, so Homer is showing us this amazing truth that there is some goodness even in the midst of this chaos. And he's rendering this chaos as graphically as he can because he wants us to feel exactly how it is and then bring us to a point where we can see, well, all of this was chaotic and confusing. Something was going on. Do we see it? Will we see it? Okay. So there's, those are just... Um, um, some of the technical things that we touched on last week. Um, one of the most important themes of refounding, I've touched on it already. Um, one of the most important things to see here that's really re remarkable, it's impossible to read the Iliad without being aware that whatever the problems are that are current, that struggle, the conflict between Achilles and the king, Agamemnon. Achilles is trying to correct a wrong. Agamemnon humiliated him. He, 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 try, he tried to use force to get him to do something because he was a king. And Achilles says, you can't do that anymore. And he withdraws from the world. Achilles is answering what he thinks is an injustice. And he's responding in real anger. We can't read without being aware that Prior to this war between the Achaeans and the Trojans, um, the, the history of the two peoples goes back where there are already injustices. When the city was founded, the humans who founded it um, betrayed the gods. Laomedon um, um, had the help of the gods in building the city and didn't give them, I mean, this is the, he didn't show them the respect that he should have. Um, so he betrayed the gods. Remember the psalm? I think I've read it. Um, Unless except the Lord build the house, they labor and build. I think I've read that in this group. That was very much a part of the Greek psyche, that, that if you didn't involve the gods in what you were doing, what you were doing would be futile. You're actually un undoing yourself without knowing it. So what we learn here is what we learn in Anthony and Cleopatra. Caesar had set out with the object of trying to bring universal peace to the world by answering all of these wounds and injustices from the past, right? I mean, that's the background of the story. We went over that pretty thoroughly. What's the effect of doing that? Can he ever achieve that on this world? History shows us again and again, every time we attempt to right a wrong, we do, we do the best we can, it still leaves us with something unanswered. We can never completely answer the wounds of the past. That's one of the facts of our human condition. The, the, the point of our faith, our, our belief is, actually one person did do that, but the cost of it was the cross. Christ came in to finally answer all the sins that we commit. And we learn from that is the only way we can finally answer these disorders that all of us inherit from the past is by dying of somehow entering into a love and a justice that will put to rest something. 
Um, and our promise is that there will come a point in time when all of those wounds and attempts to effort them will come to an end. Um, but here in the Iliad, we're made aware that what's happening in the middle of the book is, is only one of all, a line of wounds um, that people are attempting to redress. The big one in the story, Paris took Helen, brought her to Troy, the Achaeans are coming there to do what? To avenge that wrong. So what we're, what we're dealing with is the efforts that human beings make to try to take the past with them and try to answer the wounds, the injustices that, that they've inherited. That's at the center of this work. It's been, it's been, it was there in Anthony and Cleopatra, it was there in Helena, and all's well, and it was there in Merchant. Um, major, major theme. Two cities involved here, or actually two civilizations. Um, west and east. Okay, and in Troy right now is um, at risk. Um, when you read, be aware of the gods that identify with each of those peoples, okay? Because the gods are different. So if you look at the gods of the West, they're Poseidon, Hera, Athena, and Hephaestus. Those are the major gods. They're the ones who, who like, look out for the West primarily. The gods that look out for the East are Apollo, Aphrodite, Ares, and Diana. I don't want to go into this now because it, I'm, we've got to get more of the book. But don't just dismiss that. C.S. Lewis says he, he thought that both sides were alike. They're, they're not. They're just not. Let me suggest this way of looking at it. If you, if you look at the way the gods line up, what you see is that um, the fact that certain gods, certain divinities, identify with a certain people, East and West, indicates something about that people. That they have a certain way of looking at the gods and they define two different civilizations. This is so important, it's, it's absolutely crucial to what's going on in this book because the gods are actually going to come to war at the end. When Achilles returns to the battle, the gods are actually going to go to war with each other. And I'm not going to tell you who wins, but it, it, I mean, it says something about the outcome. That battle is still going on between East and West. And let me just suggest the nature of it. Most of the heresies that, that, that um, attacked our church or that tried to insinuate their way into our church in the early centuries, you know, through the early councils, the sort of five, six hundred years. Most of the major heresies came from the East. Is that an accident? Homer's showing us that there's a certain way of looking at the divine that's, that separates these two peoples. And that what's going to happen at the end is, is, in a sense, it's going to lead to the destruction of Troy, but it's also going to lead to a new sense of the human being that's peculiar to the West. Our way of looking at the human being, the human nature, is peculiar. You won't find it in China, you won't find it in Egypt, you won't find it in Africa. It's peculiar to the West. Are we losing it today? I'll just put the question out. But, but that was definitive for Homer. So pay attention to the gods and be aware that there's two different ways. And it's, it's as if the, the gods are a filter 
of, for divinity, and it makes us aware of a certain quality to the people that those gods are identified with, okay? So once again, Poseidon, Hera, Athena, Hephaestos, those are the major Western gods, and Apollo, Aphrodite, Ares, Diana. It'll become clear as we go through it, okay? Now, lots of people look at the Iliad as a poem about force. It's all about power. Lots of modern liberal, I'd say, teachers take that same view. They think the, the Iliad shows, this is so true, they think the Iliad shows the absurdity of man and how gods, how um, um, humans are the playthings of the gods. The, the gods just play with human beings. And that, that Homer's essential purpose in writing the Iliad was to show how, how futile life is, how meaningless. That the war is symbolic of the way people just destroy each other, okay? That's not an uncommon reading. Um, Simon Weil, who lived during the Second World War and who was involved with the resistance in France, a remarkable woman, a really important figure for her time, worked with the underground resistance. She wrote this essay. I, we're not, I don't have time to read it, but it would be worth reading if any of you enjoy reading secondary sources. She wrote a book called The Iliad as, as the Poem of Force. That was her basic thesis, okay? She says this, the true hero, the true subject, the center of the Iliad is force. Force employed by man, force that enslaves man, force before which man's flesh shrinks away. You can imagine the importance, because she was in the middle of this attempt on the part of Germany to use its machinery because of the force that it contained. I mean, identify Hitler with machinery. It's one of the best ways to see him. Machines, bombs, boats, tanks guns. Um, I think that's picked up with Fellowship of the Ring and, you know, so many, so many modern movies. Um, what's the, the Star Wars thing? You know, machinery power. It's as if power came into its own and we discovered the terror that it presents to us, that we have the capability of creating these objects, machinery, think bombs, that can completely destroy us. She's writing during this time when she's watching Hitler take over Europe. Force employed by man, force that enslaves man, force before which man's flesh shrinks away. In this work at all times, the human spirit is shown as modified by its relation with force, as swept away, blinded by the very force it imagined it could handle, as deformed by the weight of the force it submits to, a sword, a horse, shields, helmets, spears, chariots. For those dreamers who consider that force, thanks to progress, would soon be a thing of the past, the Iliad could appear as a historical document. For others whose powers of recognition are more acute and who perceive force today as yesterday, at the very center of human history, the Iliad is the purest and loveliest of mirrors. Because it shows us, you can't, you, I'm kidding, you know I've been kidding, you can't read five pages without seeing a spear go through somebody's eye socket or coming out his gen gentle, or genitals, a chariot running over somebody, and blood being spattered. I mean, page after page, Homer's very honest about war and the horrors of it. I want to differ with that view, because um, I don't think, even though, even though on the surface, if you've been hearing, if, if what I've been saying makes sense, 
even though that's what we feel as we go through it, something else is going on. And that's, that's my task here, to try to make that clear what that is. I can't deny the force of what she's saying or the fidelity of it because you can't read it. Men are using their, who are the greatest warriors? Achilles, Agamemnon, Hector, Aeneas, and you know. Why are they great? Because they're so much more powerful than other men. They can defeat them. They go through the book killing people. So we're watching male power take on male power and men are killing each other. They're at war. Um, this is by Joseph Ratzinger. It's his recent, it's his latest book called Western Culture, Today and Tomorrow. Um, this is from Pope Benedict. Um, he says this towards the end of this book. This is a sort of indirect way into it, but this is where I want to go. The task of Christians, this is this section. And so it's plain that Christians today face a great challenge. Their task in ours is to see to it that reason is fully functional. This is for us Christians. I, my, one of my great hopes in this course is that I hope, I, my hope is that each one of us will become better able to defend our faith from what we're learning in this class. That we'll be able to give better reasons why we believe as we do. Um, so it's plain that Christians today face a great challenge. Their task and ours is to see to it that reason is fully functional. Reason. Not just in the realm of technology and material progress in the world, but also and especially as a faculty of truth promoting its capacity to recognize what is good, which is a necessary condition for law and therefore also a prerequisite for peace in the world. What is science? What is the Protestant world that, that believes that man is corrupt, that his reason is corrupted? What do they contribute to our sense in the modern world that our reason is corrupted, flawed, family flawed? Benedict's taking another position. He's saying it's crucial that we recover a respect um, for, the, for the great gift of reason. Therefore, also a prerequisite for peace in the world. Our task as contemporary Christians is to make sure that our idea of God is not excluded from the debate about man. This idea of God has two essential characteristics. God himself is the Logos, the Word. I began it today by saying, epos, epic, means a word. At the, at the center of this belief that the Greeks are showing us is that there is this word everywhere in nature. Um, the gods are everywhere. Just stop and think about this just for a second. Is there anything in Homer's world that doesn't have a divine aspect? A stream, a tree? No. The, the Greeks believed that the gods were in the trees, gods were in the, the Odysseus's mother, or sorry, Achilles's mother, Thetis, is the goddess of a stream. She's a nymph. Because they saw God was everywhere in the world. Show me anything in our world close to that. The world's emptied of God today. It's all things because they're known by geometric abstractions in a scientific mind. The Greeks believed that God was everywhere. You couldn't, if, if you, if you, <laughs> we're going to see this in the Odyssey. 
Um, if you're so proud that you violate a stream, say, or a tree, the, they believe that you should be careful because the gods are there. Gods were everywhere in nature, okay? So the Greeks believed in a logos. That's their word before Christ came. When John picks up, he says, in the beginning was the word. That, that link is explicit, even though it was more you know, it was explicit before that. The logos means there is this word. Everything in nature means, it has a meaning. So there's an affinity between things. They speak to each other, a tree, a stream. So Ratzinger's saying, the first thing that we need to know about God is that he's the Logos. Christians need to be sure that our idea of God, idea of God is not excluded from the debate about man. This idea of God has two essential characteristics. God himself is the Logos. That's our, Christ is the Word, the Logos. The Greeks had this intuition about this Logos everywhere in creation. The rational origin of all reality, the creative reason from which the world came forth and which is reflected in the world. God is logos, meaning reason, the word. And therefore man complies with this logos by keeping an open mind and defending a type of reason that's not blind to the moral dimensions of being. For logos means a reason that is not simply mathematical, but is at the same time the foundation and guarantee of the good. Because the object of God's love is good. He wants goodness everywhere. Faith in God in, as Logos is also faith in the creative power of reason. It is faith in God the creator. Which means believing that man is created in the image of God and that he therefore shares in the inviolable dignity of God himself. What's one of the defining characteristics of men then if he's made in the image of God? Human dignity. We carry the image of God in us. So God is Logos, but there's a second characteristic. Christian faith in God is that he is love. So two of the compelling things defining God are reason, light, and love. Okay? So even though on the surface the poem looks like it's a poem devoted to power, and in some sense it is, the, the claim that I'm going to make here is that it's not, okay? Here's my claim, and I want to underscore this, so I'm going to repeat it. It's the Logos. Pay attention to this. It's the Logos that gives a structure and a purpose to the use of power. Take the word, the Logos, out of the Iliad, and all we would have would be men killing each other. We live in a fallen world, men and women, to kill each other. Women are as capable of using force in different ways sometimes as men, but it's a fallen world, we all share in it. Um, take the Logos out of nature and what would we become? What would we do? According to the modern world, we're products of these blind forces. If we become a product, if that's what we are, we're things. If we're things, there's no reason we can't get rid of each other. So the Logos is absolutely essential. It's the Logos that gives a structure and purpose and direction to the use of power. Get it out, power's chaotic, it's, it's vicious, it's destructive. So my claim is that what, what's at the center of the Iliad 
is this working of a divine order in the midst of a war, the gods intervening, interacting with men while they're killing each other um, to bring something about that the men can't bring on their own. Okay? And all of it starts with this quarrel with Achilles and Agamemnon. Okay? That's the, remember, Homer did not begin with Paris taking Helen. This war has been going on for nine and a half years. And I think I spoke to this. What's the significance of nine and a half? We're about at ten. Something's happening at this moment in this quarrel between Achilles and Agamemnon that for all the harm that it's going to do, immediate harm, because more Greeks are going to die when, he, when Achilles pulls out, some good is going to come out of it at the end. Okay? So my claim here is that, that what the Iliad is showing us is that there is this logos, this power at work in the midst of all this chaos that is working to bring a good to this tendency on the part of men to destroy each other, ourselves, for us to do, to do the harm that we do to ourselves. So those are the, those are the major, some of the major concerns of the Iliad, okay? Let me stop now before I any questions. Must not be doing something right here. I don't believe this. Come on. Very good. Yes, yes. <laughs> Don't leave Aries out of that because he's always straight of war. But he's always Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you put that really well. No, I, really, I think it's a pretty fair description of. Because one could quarrel there's something wrong with all the gods. I mean, it's not hard to do that, but I think you. The way you balance the two things is fairly accurate. I don't want to go into that right now because I want to get more of the book behind us, but I want to come to that eventually. What's the significance of that between East and West and what's going to Okay, okay, let's, I want to, I want to turn to the book. Let me just quick, quick, very quick summary. The book begins with the invocation. We learn from Homer what the major concerns of the book are. According to Homer in the invocation, he says, his focus is going to be on the will of Zeus and Achilles' anger. Those are the two subjects that he mentions, the will of Zeus. So one of the things we've got to keep in mind is what is Zeus's will? What does he help to bring about? Remember, he's the, the one god that sort of stands outside of the east-west dichotomy. What's, what's his function of the book? What's his will? How does he bring it about? Zeus sends Agamemnon this false dream, and um, on the basis of that dream, Agamemnon goes out and says the war's over, and all the men rush to the ships. I want to look at that. But I could, we're not going to have time to look at all of this, but I want to look at what Odysseus is, does to bring the men back. I just, to, a quick point, think about the, 
what's the word? Um, egotism is, what's the word? Um, yeah, it's arrogance, but it's the, even greater. It's, it's, oh God. Anyway, this extreme egotism in this man, after, after fighting for nine and a half years, he gets this dream and he's gonna test his soldiers and send them all to the ships. It just shows the, how, how arrogant and how blind he is as a ruler. Um, anyway, he, he, tell, he tells them that um, what he does and the men are tested and Odysseus brings them back. Then in, we have the fight between Men Menelaus and Paris. It's then when Paris is about to be killed by Menelaus and Aphrodite comes up and rescues him and takes him back to Troy where after he gets scolded a little bit, he's making love, and this goes to your point, he's making love while all of his comrades are out on the battlefield dying. And he's the one they're, they're fighting for. Um, Pandorus wounds, sorry? goes to bed. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But I don't want to go there. What is what is that? <laughs> put Helen, put Helen in your, you know, sense of what's going on here. Just but um God, this thing. I don't um Diomedes has this Aristia. He's he remember the Aristia means he he can't be This is really I know. Go away. <laughs> God. Pandarus wounds Menelaus. The truce is broken and the, and the two peoples go at their war with each other. Diomedes and Glaucus meet. I want to look at that. Hector goes back to Troy to retrieve Paris. And there's that touching scene between him and Andromache. I want to look at that for a second. Nighttime comes, I think it's the end of book eight. We don't have to, time to look at it, but I would just suggest go to the end of book eight and read the passage because it shows how peaceful is nature is when men aren't fighting. So Homer's giving us this description of this horrible battle in which men are being killed right and left. But at the end of that, he shows us that nature by itself seems at peace. And then in book nine, we've got Achilles embassy, which I want to get to here. So I'm just going to look at a couple of these scenes. Um, I'm going to look at two. Let's see, what do I want to do? Yeah. Um, look at page one, or book three, line 120. Yeah, somewhere in there. On, let, take a look at book three about line one. Um, book three around line 120, Helen comes to the um, tower to look out on the field and it says of her, Laodice, loveliest looking of all the daughters of Priam. She came on Helen in the chamber. She was weaving a great web 
a red folding robe, the working into it, the numerous struggles of Trojans, breakers of horses, and bronze armor. So she's telling the story of herself in the war. Over on 155, she goes to the ramparts, and the Trojans look at her and say, about 155, um, surely there's no blame on Trojans and strong grieved Achaeans if for a long time they suffer a hardship for a woman like this one, terrible is the likeness of her face to immortal goddesses. I, you know, you can read that stuff and pass it by. I don't want to. It's so clear that Homer's showing the, the, the danger of mortal beauty, the feminine beauty, the power that feminine beauty has over men. And I think the tendency is to blow that off today, but if you look at 90% of the commercials on television, you can't miss it. I mean, they're, they're all appealing to that, what's that, that subliminal sense, you know, that the beauty of a, a woman, the figure. Remember, she's at the center of this war, and these people are acknowledging her right now. This story is about, it's about Achilles, but behind it is Helen and Paris, okay? And right now, it's really clear that it's her beauty that has that kind of power. Look at, look at the way Hollywood celebrates feminine beauty and the way they play with it. And, and my, think about what it does to women, the women who, you know, who are put forward that way for adulation. And, um, so don't minimize that power. It's right at the center of this war. Homer's making it clear here. Um, she, she describes all the men, and then um, we go back to the field, and Paris and Menelaus um, fight. Hector comes to get um, Paris in book six, about line 405. Um, yeah, it's page one, here it's page 160, around one, one six, page 162 in my text. It's book six about line, let's say 335, somewhere in there. Hector comes back to get Paris. He should have been out in the battlefield fighting. He's here making love to Helen. And Hector has hard words for him. And then Andromache, his wife, says she doesn't want him to go back out of the battlefield because she's afraid that if he does, he's going to die. She's doing what a wife She's saying what a wife had. Um, um, over on um, about line 405, um, Hector smiled in silence as he looked on his son, but she, Andromache, stood close beside him, letting her tears fall go down. For me, it would be far better to seek it when I have lost you, for there is no other consolation for me after you've gone to your destiny. Only grief, since I have no father, no honored mother. She says to him, you are my father, my brother, my, you are everything to me. If, if I lose you, I lose everything. Because Achilles, she's saying, Achilles, this is from her, Achilles has taken her whole family. Um... um down below, Hector, thus you are father to me, my honored mother, you are my brother, and you it is who are my young husband. Please take pity upon me then, stay here. Hector says, 440, about line 440, all these things are in my mind, also lady. 
Yet I would feel deep shame before the Trojans and the Trojan women with trailing garments. If like a coward I were to shrink aside from the fighting and the spirit will not let me since I've learned to be valiant, to fight always among the foremost ranks of the Trojans, winning for my own self great glory and for my father. For I know this thing well in my heart and my mind knows it. There will come a day when sacred Ilion shall perish and Priam of the people of Priam of the strong Aspir. But it is not so much the pain to come of the Trojans that troubles me, not even of Priam the king nor Hecabe, not the thought of my brothers who in their numbers and valor shall drop in the dust under the hands of men who hate them, as troubles me the thought of you when some bronze-armored Achaean leads you off, taking away your day of liberty. Um, she hands him their son, and the son sees the helmet with the hair on it, and he's terrified. And one of the last images we're left with in this chapter is the son, who's a, a, you know, an infant, being terrified by the armaments of war. Um, now, quickly, uh, book seven, line 335 or so. We don't have time to do this, but let me do this kind of quickly. You remember when I read last week, um, I read from the opening quarrel when Achilles, Agamemnon doesn't call the assembly. The Achaeans are dying from that plague. It's been going on for days. Agamemnon's the leader. Somebody should have called an assembly. Achilles calls it and says, give the, give the girl back. Apollo sent a plague um, because you dishonored him by dishonoring his priest. Give the girl back. And Agamemnon says, I'm not gonna give the girl back. You give it. And that's when they quarrel, and Agamemnon actually takes Achilles' Grobrises, and Achilles withdraws. I read that when he, remember he called him a wine sack, and he said, you're a non-entity, you, 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 you know, we're here for you, you're getting all the money and we're dying. He has no good words for him. He vows never to come back in until the Achaeans are dying. And that's what begins to happen. When he pulls out, the strongest man is out of the war, the Achaeans start to suffer more. Hector's on a rampage. The, the book will actually take Hector all the way to the ships with Achilles out of the war. He'll, he'll burn the ships. They have no way to go home. So it looks like the Achaeans are going to get wiped out. It starts here. You saw that assembly. It was full of contention. We don't have time, but when Agamemnon gives the false dream, all the men start rushing to the ships. Odysseus comes out and he beats the lords. No, he, he says to the lords, Lords, what are you doing? Go back. He beats the soldiers, says come back, and they get into an assembly, and it's there where Thersites, who's described as the man of many words, but no sense, he has lots of words. Um, he says, Achilles is a stupid man, we should go back from the war. Achilles beats him, or Odysseus beats him, and says, shut up and sit down. Yeah, hits him, hits him. Um, we don't have time, I'm sorry for that. Thersites is a man, he says, Achilles wrong. He points out real faults, but every one of his faults has the motive of wanting to get out of that war. So his counsel is get out of the war, people are dying. And Odysseus beats him and it's then that Nestor says, the problem is you haven't ordered them. Order them in according to the catalog and we'll find out who's weak and we'll win this war and then you know, we go back in the war. So we saw an instance of the Greek assembly it's full of contention and fighting and differences, okay? Now look at this Trojan assembly on, in book seven, about line 340. So he spoke, um, Hector's already winning, and he says, 
um, he'll say on the, um, he says, only, if only I could be like this all the days of my life, I would be a god. He, he wants to be like a god. He wants to, he really thinks he's going to be godlike at this point. Achilles is out of the war. He's pushing the men back. He's already winning. Um, during this break, the Trojans have an assembly, and this is what happens about line 340. Now, there was an assembly of Trojans high in the city of Ilion, fiercely shaken to tumult before the doors of Priam. And among these, Antenor, the thoughtful, began to address them. Trojans or Dodanians, companions, hear me. Um, come then, let's give Helen of Hargos back and all her possessions. He says, let's put this word on end, give, give her back. Paris speaks up. He spoke thus and sat down. Um, among them rose up brilliant Alexandros, the lord of lovely-haired Helen. He says, Antenor, these things that you argue please me no longer. Your mind knows how to contrive a scene better than this one. But if in all seriousness this is your true argument, then it's the very gods who ruin the brains within you. I will speak out before the Trojans, breaker of horses. I refuse straight out. I will not give back the woman. He spoke, um, sits down. Priam stands up and he says, Trojans, Dardanians, companions, hear me. Take now your supper about the cities you did before this, and remember your duty of the watch, and be each man wakeful. At dawn, let Idios go to the hollow ships and speak with the sons of Atreus, Menelaus, giving the word of Alexandrus, for whose sake this strife has arisen. To add to this solid message and ask them if they're willing to stop the sorrowful fighting until we can burn the bodies of our dead. We shall fight again until the divinity chooses between us and gives us victory to one over the other. And that's only one of a number of instances where Priam says, let the gods decide who's going to do this. Now, I just want to take a few minutes before we end with these two questions. We haven't looked at enough of this, but just from what we've read. If we look at the two assemblies, Achaean and Trojan, what do we learn about the two peoples? Um, what's the difference between them? And the next major question, both of them to me are major at this point. If you look at Hector and Achilles, in the opening scene, I read that scene where he says, you wine sack of a dumb. I mean, he, he, he couldn't be more fierce and angry, and his language couldn't be more blunt. He, he calls his king down, and he, uh, he's actually going to pull out his sword to kill him. Remember, and Athena comes and says, wait, we will, it's the goddess who says, hold on, we will get you your honor back, and he leaves. So we see Achilles doing this, leaving the battle, and we know that one of the consequences of that act is going to lead to the death of Achaeans. The opening lines of the book are the anger of Achilles and the thousandfold deaths it led to. So his people are going to die because of what he does. So we've got Achilles doing that. We've got Hector going to Andromache or back to Troy to get Paris and says to Andromache what he does, the, the words that I read. So when you look at the two men, Achilles, who's the greatest of the Achaeans, and Hector, who's the greatest of the Trojans, you've got paradigms of both worlds. They're the very best those two worlds can produce. They're representative of those two worlds. The, the book is going to end on a battle between those two men. It's saying something about the two cultures. Each one represents something. 
So my two questions are, first, what's the difference between the Trojans and the Achaeans on the basis of their assembly? What do we learn? And the second, what's the difference between Achilles and Hector? Just with those two scenes, Hector goes back to get Paris. He has the tender exchange with Andromache, who says, stay here, and he says, I can't. And so let's just take a few minutes and we'll end. Take the first one. What's the difference between Trojans and, and the Achaeans on the basis of their assemblies? Do we learn anything about East-West? It's really interesting you should say that. Herodotus's description of the Odyssey, which to me, I mean, really is a pretty accurate description. These men have been at it for nine and a half years, and we don't get any indication. Thersites wants to go home, but we know, we know that the, um, the Trojans... The, are the Greeks going to go back without Helen? I mean, did, would they go back without a sense of being defeated, if they went after, particularly after nine and a half years? Or the Tro um, Paris and Priam, the king, the father, makes it clear Go back to battle, you know, settle yourself, let the gods decide between us. Because Antonor says, give Helen back. Presumably, if they gave her back, the war would come to an end. But Paris says no, and his father backs him up. Herodotus' take, which I think is a fairly accurate one, he says, the, the, the reason for the war, and the, I, I think he misreads it, but he says the reason for the war is these people want booty. They're killing each other, and every time they kill somebody, they're taking their armor, swords. The, the Achaeans are, the, the book started because Chryses came to ransom his daughter because the Greeks are taking all their booty from the outlying villages. All, all the towns are being raped and villaged, pillaged. They're acquiring more and more stuff. And Troy is often described as the, the city of treasures, that it's buried treasures underneath, you know. The, and, it's, and it's being raped. It's, it's all, the, all of its wealth is being taken from it. So one of the cri criticisms of the book, and it seems to me a pretty serious one, is these men seem to have, in fact, let me be blunt. They're fighting for their honor. They were dishonored when Paris took Helen. What's the way in which, what's the sign of a man's honor in this book? His possessions, his booty. The more possessions you have, the more, it, the more it's shown how strong and powerful you are. Why does, why, why does Agamemnon not want to give up that woman? Maybe without a, a prize? And Achilles just said to him, we're all dying here, and you're filling up your coffers, and we're dying. Um, that's why I've said, I think I said this before, that this is probably one of the most wonderful critiques of American culture that has ever been written, because what drives everybody is booty, possessions. The belief is that, that your dignity depends on how much you have, your strength and power to show it. You're honored by that. We'll see it again and again and again. What's the difference between these two peoples just on the basis of their assemblies? Or the difference between, let me put the second one. What's your feelings towards Hector and Achilles at this point when you put the two, those two scenes together? Which man is more admirable? Hmm? Why? Because he has a quarter in his thinking. 
it's not. And I think as a people too, the Trojan tends to be more disciplined maybe, or more like... Um, they seem less self-interested, they are that. You so. know, they kind of defer to the hierarchy, like the king, uh, whereas like the king, they're all over the place. They just, it's like, you know, sort yeah. of chaos. Chuck, did you? Give a support the earlier one that they the Trojan seems less selfish. Back that up and you support it. By the way, vainglory is the first I was looking for. Vainglory of Agamemnon when he does that, and there's a lot of vainglory in but go ahead. Yeah. Right. Well, he's, what, he's, he gives the reason. For what? What is he doing it for? He cannot stand here and come to Christ. Well, no. I read those lines. Hold on. What, what was his reason for going back into the war when she said stay? He doesn't want to be thought a coward. Yeah. And by the way, don't, don't minimize, because it's going to play out later in a, in a way that he says, for my own, where are we? Yet I would feel deep shame before the Trojans. And does he, is he doing this for a right or for how he appears to other people? I feel a deep shame before the Trojans, the Trojan women with trailing garments. If like a coward, I were to shrink aside from the fighting. Um, fight always among the foremost ranks of the Trojans. Winning for my own self great glory and for me. Put that together with what you just said. Here, we, it's, it's past time and I wanted to get out. Let me just make a couple of comments here. One of the differences between East and West in the assemblies is something's going on between Achilles and Agamemnon that neither one of them understands. What's at issue is honor. The, the central theme of this work is honor. What the Greeks call Kleos. God, sorry, Kleos. Achilles has been dishonored. Every man fights for his honor. What the war is being fought over is honor. The, Paris took Helen. He not only did he take Helen, he violated the marriage rights, so did she, and he violated the rights of hospitality. In the Greek world, you, you welcomed somebody in your home because you knew that person could be a god. That's why. That's where hospitality comes from. He took advantage of those rights of hospitality and under cover of them, took off. So he shamed the very deepest things, a sense of honor, the importance of marriage, hospitality, which involved the gods. So these men are fighting for a sense of honor. This is not a small thing. 
But, but presumably they've been going on in this war for nine and a half years because they're all gaining booty. The whole thing is about booty. The priest coming and saying, I've got a ransom. Take it. Here, I'm ransoming it. By the way, keep in mind Christ, if you would, as a ransomer. The difference between the, the human effort to make ransoms to make up for what we do and a, and a God. But it won't answer. You know, um, Agamemnon refuses and Achilles comes out of the... Just a couple of things. There's something going on between Achilles and Agamemnon that has to do with the dignity of man and human freedom. Because everybody, everybody is working off an honor code in which they presume that if they, if they get booty, their self-worth is enhanced. Agamemnon says, I'm not going to do this. And Achilles says, you're not going to take my woman because to have her taken away would diminish his honor. Is everybody seeing? So honor is very much at the issue. Boy, the problem with the honor code in the beginning of the book is if honor can be conferred by external things, what does that mean? It It can be taken away. So is honor, we're back in the Job story with, with God giving Satan to try him to see if he's really righteous, if he's living by some external code or not. We're, we're at the Job, we're in the Old Testament here. What's at issue is, what's the, is there a real worth to the human being apart from external things? Because everybody's living according to booty in this world. The more booty you have, the more your life is at Menelaus. has got cities, so does Agamemnon. So we're in America. I hope everybody's, somebody argue that. What, does, what determines the worth of a person in modern America? Job, wealth, power. Achilles is breaking from that. He says you can't do that um, as a matter of honor. Antoner says, give the girl back. The war would be over. How many people are fighting with, Priam, with Paris or Priam? In the East, it's quiestic. There's no challenge. Nobody's questioning him. And what's his response? Let the gods decide, as if he's being pious. I hope everybody's aware right now, the East and West. The West is unsettled. There's an argument, there's a contention over something deep that the men don't understand, okay? In the East, there's no contention at all. There's no questioning. And yet the irony is they could give her back. Antoner said, does he fight? Does he do anything? Oh, Priam says, or Paris says, I'm not going to get the rule back. What does the father do? I'm going to give, he enables. That's a modern, like, I mean, I'm sort of giving things away. I hope everybody sees this. The war would be over. He, why is he doing that? His son, the gods, he seems very pious. So we're back in the cave. We've got two men, Achilles, Hector. On the surface, Hector looks like he's more tender, more family-oriented. By the way, I, I just love, it, it's so good. Plato got the cave from Homer. According to appearances, who's better? Hector seems tender. There's an exchange with his wife and a child. Homer's doing everything he can to, to give an appearance that here's this good guy, here's this selfish guy looking out for his own good. So the question is, where are we in the cave according to appearances? I, I just look at this and I'm amazed at what Homer's doing. According to appearances, Hector is far and away a better man. Achilles is selfish. 
But here we are in the cave, right at the beginning, I've talked about Homer ordering things up. Where are we going to go with these two men? The book is going to come down to a battle between the two of them. What are we going to learn about both men as we go through this battle that has essentially to do with human dignity? What's, in what does the honor of a man, a woman, a human being consist? External booty? If it can be conferred, it can be taken away. And if it's taken away, then what's the worth of man? So here we are at the beginning of Western civilization with this. And just quickly, I'm, I'm sorry, I really wanted to, I wanted to try to be better than I've been on time, but here, book nine, you know that Agamemnon, Agamemnon sends three men, Phoenix, Aias, and Phoenix is the man who raised Achilles. He's like a father to Achilles. Phoenix, Aias, and Odysseus, who's the man of prudence. And Agamemnon says, and this is truth. I mean, read in book. He gives him cities, treasures, piles of treasures, women, that if possessions no man, you know, what man is going to, Agamemnon is going to give all that to him. What's Achilles' response? Take a look at book nine. He's angry at Aias and Odysseus and Phoenix for trying to play on him the way he does. Page 214, book 9, about line 605. Two of the men have spoken up, Phoenix and Odysseus. Aias will finish it in a minute. They each give different arguments. You really should read them to see what the differences are because they really say a lot about the values of what people value in that world. But here's Achilles' answer. I mean, yeah, Achilles' answer. 605, book 9. Then in answer to him spoke Achilles of the swift feet. Phoenix, my father, aged, illustrious, such honor is a thing I need not. I think I'm honored already in Zeus's ordinance, which will hold me here beside my curved ship as long as life's wind. The thing that I didn't read to you before, <clears throat> if you go back to the fight between, the conflict between, um, um, and, and, uh, and in the book nine, Achilles is going to say that his mother Thetis, his mother Thetis said to him, you have two destinies. This is fate. It's fated to you. This is, I love the life because it, it mystified me for a long time and then it was like a sunburst. She said, there are two destinies. You can either live a long, comfortable life or you can live a short life with honor. And now he's facing that. And now he says, such honor is a thing I need not. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. Now quick, just two quick last questions. Thetis, the mother to her son, remember she's a nymph, she's half gone, half gone. She said, um, you have two destinies. You can live a long, comfortable life or a short life with honor. Does anybody want to comment on that? What? Come on, what? Go ahead. Anybody? Can I ask just a question? Yeah. Was that a choice for Achilles to choose, or was he destined to? Those are his two destinies, one or the other. He has a choice. He has a choice. Yeah. What's the irony of that? Is it any different for any man? I mean, isn't that amazing? I mean, all of us, that is, all of us are going to go through life and we're going to 
we're going to reach points of risk, moments of risk. And we know, take the Achilles situation, you're in a job and you're the CEO or your manager humiliates you and does something unjust in your mind. You can, you can express your outrage and your anger. What do most CEOs think about anger? They don't like it. Um, and put your job at risk. Yeah, to do that means you might put your family at risk. So is he talking about anything that's peculiar to Achilles? It's absolutely universal. What man does not, what man or and more and more women in the workplace, who doesn't face that point? How many women give in for their careers today? How many men do it to secure their careers? Or you risk your life and put your end short life with honor. Because who's going to get honor just sitting along and going along with, you know, just... Um, so he's facing that. And at this point, he says uh, to the three men, such honor is a thing I need not. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. What could Achilles have said that nine chapters earlier? I don't think so. What's happening to Achilles? What is he seeing at this moment? Yeah, I mean, that's a good way of putting it. It seems to me what he's saying in that line, I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance, Zeus's way, is he's beginning to see that there's something transcendent to the honor of man that I don't think he knew before, and he wouldn't have known unless he had broken from it. And, and the cost of that, the cost of that is a loss of everything for himself and the loss of everything for his people because his people are going to be dying. Now here's, here's the, sorry, Chuck, give me, here's the interesting thing. Lots of people um, criticize Achilles because they say how selfish he was. I mean, my response is that if he, if he goes back into the war, what's going to happen for the next nine and a half years? Is there any reason to think this war will stop? According to what Priam says, the Trojans or the, the Greeks? No. So this is a breaking point. Something happens here in the West that puts everything at risk. And it's also because he steps outside of that. Where we've talked about this with Portia or Helena or even Anthony and Cleopatra. When they step outside of that world, what we call the tragic world, they, they, they're isolated from that world, that something comes to them. And at this point, he's seen that there's something transcendent to honor. How well does he understand it? I don't think he understands it very well. But he's knowing something he didn't know nine books ago. So we know at this point he rejects the, the booty, the, the bribery. The war continues, and in the next nine books that we'll pick up next week, Hector is going to take the war to the ships. And we're going to see exactly the cost of this choice. So that's what Homer's looking at, this whole question of human dignity, the cost of it, what's happening at this moment in history at, in this particular war. It's a founding book. Okay. Any questions or? Okay, it's more bloodshed for the next <laughs> for the next eight books. Chuck, I did. I'm sorry. Did I did I get eight away from Enjoy your reading. It really is a great book. It really is a great book.